0: Wow. I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Hey man, how are you? Uh, I'm doing well. How are you? Good, 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 good. Can you hear me? I can I can hear you well. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Um so I start this question with everyone, but, uh, you know, what's your relationship with Vietnam, the country today?
1: Today. Um, well, I just came back. I had gone to Vietnam in in February, uh, in, uh, trying to figure out, um, what I wanted to cook. Um, I was kind of transitioning out of American food and, and trying to look back into my roots and, Uh, and then when I went back there I wasn't really sure that that's where I needed to go I just had a hunch Um, and then when I got there you know something something about the people and I remember just landing and being like okay I made the right call Uh, and my relationship with Vietnam right now is that uh, that it just feels right you know, when I hang out with Vietnamese people, when I speak the language, when I eat the food, I know there's something there. So I, I feel connected to it.
0: When you left your last uh, workplace, did you know that you were going to go to Vietnam or was it just, uh, you know, you quit and you decided to go to Vietnam?
1: I I knew I was going to go to Vietnam. I had planned. I'd let them know. I gave them a three months notice that i was gonna leave and uh and from that time i just started getting ready for my trip i was gonna go i bought a a one-way ticket to vietnam i had didn't i did not bought a return ticket and i told everybody i was like i don't have a return flight i may just i may just leave forever uh With
0: no prospect of work or anything in vietnam
1: um, no prospect of work in Vietnam, but um, some job opportunities
0: when I got back. And how long were you planning to go for? I think it was
1: two months in Vietnam, and then I wanted to go like one month in Japan right yeah. after.
0: And when you uh, planned to go to Vietnam, did you kind of map out like where you wanted to eat, or what was the plan of of eating? The
1: eating plan is that's really just the vacation is the eating uh, for me. Um, so my brother and uh, his now husband uh, joined me on the trip. So I met them in Hanoi. I originally landed in Mekong, where I uh, where I was born, and spent some time with family for a second there. And that's when I was like, oh yeah, definitely should be in Vietnam right now. Really good decision. And then I met with them in Hanoi. We went to Sapa. Uh, And that was going to be my mini vacation before they left. And that was going to be on my own. And then after that, um, I'm very fortunate um, that uh, I am a chef in the age of Instagram. And it's very easy for me to connect with other chefs. So I just shoot them a DM. They can kind of look at my Instagram and see where I work. And normally that gives me enough credit to just hang out. And then they kind of help me uh, navigate the city um also a big Vietnamese community on Instagram too that everyone was just shooting me ideas what to do but another thing was my brother's co-worker he has a bunch of family over there who has a ton of restaurants and somehow they just knew they're like if you want to just go and work at one of these restaurants to just like intern and stuff and they'll teach me everything I need to know and they'll uh they'll show me where they shop like all the things that a chef wants to know Right.
0: Uh, so uh, it's going to be a good trip so you didn't have any plans to go to any specific like because when some of our friends um travel like namely bow or mickey or you know any of these people uh-huh. when they travel they map yeah, things yeah. out they try to figure things uh-huh. out where to go yeah and they really pinpoint you know, day-to-day, you know, meal by meal where to go. Did you do that at all? I mean,
1: I, I wrote out a, uh, all the places that um, were uh, places that I would be interested in going. I, I'd mapped it out on Google Maps and uh, that if I was close by, I'd eat there. But I was um, and I went to a few of those places, but I mostly just let um, whoever was with me who, who lived in, in that city um, kind of lead the way.
0: Were there any memorable restaurants that you um, went to?
1: Um, memorable
0: restaurants? I mean, there were so many good ones. Sorry to put you on but, the spot. Uh, you don't have to name the names, but like yeah. Uh, yeah. W- the menu,
1: uh-huh. you
0: know, and was there anything that stood out? Sapa was very interesting. They are known for their salmon and their
1: sturgeon. And that was really interesting to see. Yeah. Um, I don't get to eat sturgeon that often. Sturgeon's pretty expensive in America. When I went to Sapa, it was like affordable and everybody was eating it. And it was just cool to see what they were doing with it. But also they're eating horse over there and they were doing... Um, Sapa. There's a lot of different... In Sapa, there's so many indigenous groups. So you just see so many different cultures, like uh, uh, what different techniques apply to their food. And one of them was like, uh, uh, I don't know what... Uh, indigenous group they're fun but they do um horse hot pot and that was so good and they would give you um we ordered apple wine and it just shows up in an old plastic water bottle <laughs> it's just the paper is all crinkled and everything and i was like is this dirty water they just gave us <laughs> it was the app and it was delicious so we had uh that uh apple wine that they who knows where they made that uh and then and, and horse horse hot pot which had absolutely no meat in it It was just straight horse organ and it was incredible um and what else there's uh in saigon there's a family who does uh suckling pig it's exceptional suckling pig it's perfectly crispy skin super tender meat you just like look at it and you're like these people have been doing this for a long time and this is some high level shit so and
0: was um, it like a hole in the wall or
1: no, they had it's like a big franchise, but to nail something that quality and to be able to, to nail it at every location and have it consistent every time you eat it is is a feat. Um, also, you know what? Going away, um, seeing all those because waste food is very delicate, right? It's like wrapped. It's the most pain in the ass, like region of Vietnam for food wise nice. to make. Uh, and to see all the stuff being made and for them to sell it for a dollar i'm always like oh, you guys need to charge more money man <laughs> like <laughs> i see how long it takes for you to make bumble plop like you gotta charge more money for this. you know that's how much they can afford in the area so yeah. way was great because i just ate all this like very that's where the uh, vietnamese royalty had uh, had eaten so all the um, imperial food
0: was in uh, in like way that's definitely one of that my favorite um cuisines from vietnam like mi guang and it's pretty yeah. yeah amazing amazing food lots of yeah. how uh, long did you stay in vietnam Manhattan for
1: here. vietnam I, dude there was supposed to be a two-month trip i was there for like two and a half weeks why did you <laughs> cut of corona trip? hit and i was like
0: a corona you
1: know, um yeah the pandemic i was just watching when i left people were just joking about the coronavirus uh, or covid uh at the time they called corona and um they're like oh don't go over there you know it's right next to china uh and you're gonna get sick and they're at the time there's like maybe like three cases in los angeles and i was like i'm just gonna go like i've been playing this for a while i'll you know i'll figure it out and then i get there and then la gets i mean the united states gets hit really hard and uh restaurant closure starts happening and you just start seeing your friends and family start panicking. I'm in Vietnam. Things are, I'm starting to move South. I'm in Sapa Pa in the North. I hit Hanoi and then I hit, um, way and Hue. So I'm starting to move South, but also, so is the virus. And you see right after I leave the city, they shut down the whole city. Then I get to Danang. They hit, they get a case city shuts down and I get to Saigon and I'm in Saigon at this, by the time I get to Saigon, my brother and his husband cut the trip short. They're like, we, we, have, to, we, we have to go home. This is, this is getting out of hand. And I start panicking. Um, I get to Saigon, um, I'm, I've totally canceled all my plans. I don't really know what I'm gonna do next. I'm just hanging out in a hotel. And then I meet some people, you know, it, I, I made the best of the situation and then Saigon shuts down. And at that point, I'm like, well, after Saigon, there's, <laughs> there's just me tall, and then And mm-hmm. I don't know what they do after that. And then, the, and then you know, who knows what's going to happen to the world. So, so I went home. Uh,
0: and, uh, yeah, that was, was a very short-lived trip. What, I can't imagine Saigon shutting down. Um, there's yeah. millions of motorbikes out, You know, what, is, what does that look like when Saigon shuts down?
1: Uh, it looks about the same. I think all the restaurants got closed and stuff. We're still closed. kind of like running around and stuff, um, but I mean, you as you know, in Asia, they take um, uh, they you know, most people are married, wearing masks like normally. Uh, yeah, wearing motorbikes and stuff. This shit seriously. Bikes. So you know, state in control. The Vietnamese government was on top of it, so I didn't really. It never got really out of hand, and people were still able to continue to live their lives. But you definitely saw. Um, some restaurants uh i mean all the restaurants got closed uh i had a friend there that owned a uh, massage parlor and she had to close her thing down and uh
0: yeah yeah can we go back to the horse was, i can't get my mind off that it's great It was delicious horse yeah so did they flavor the horse that i mean how did it came it was, in it chunks? It hot ice chunks or I
1: mean, it was, like, liver and stomach and intestine. And I just – I kept eating. I was like, this is great. I and mean, yeah. I was really curious as to what horse, like, like uh, okay, meat I mean, tasted yeah. like. Like, is horse there a, tenderloin what or whatever. Uh, is there? T- I mean, it tasted like um, – it reminds me of, like, venison. It's not, like, super gamey. It's just, like, really lean. Uh, but uh, – yeah, I mean, what was it? it didn't really have a standout flavor horse. Although I hear horse tartare is fantastic, they eat that in France, I believe, right. <laughs> and I would be down. Uh, uh, but the horse Oregon hotpot was was really good, and just and it just tastes like a like a good hot pot. like a.
0: And I'm thinking like about more the Chinese style hot pot. I'm thinking about the economics of horse. I mean, how can this <laughs> shop? produce uh enough horse right i mean you got to get a lot of horse meat to go through that place to to sustain like <laughs> how rest many of- horses Think a- about it yeah Sir, how, many- how many horses a day do you go through <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh yeah that's a, that's a good question right? um, i mean because i've been a i, I didn't see a to lot figure of figure how big these organs are yeah yeah There's not that you're right there was not that many horses i, I don't actually recall seeing a single horse
0: what if it's false advertising, man? What if they're selling me cow? Like, <laughs> yeah, but, but even cows are expensive, you know. Like, uh, mm-hmm. and and you just don't see how. Well, cows would make sense, but horses are. You know, it's just not a lot. I mean, yeah. If you googled how many horses were existing in Vietnam, it's. Yeah. I think I did that once, many many years ago. Yeah. There's not a lot of horses in Vietnam, and I'm like the economics of that the ratios of actually you know slaughtering a horse and getting that or maybe they import it from another country they might import it. i mean it's really close to china there
1: might be a lot of horses yeah. on the other side of the border yeah. um but yeah it would just be funny if they gave me a very normal protein pig, <laughs> and, pig, and uh, sold it off yeah it sold it off as uh, something more exotic uh i mean I don't know, there's a lot of ox out there um uh, yeah was that's, that's not nearly as much livestock as i thought yeah. looking
0: back on it so before you vietnam you were um you were at rustic canyon right mm-hmm. yeah how long were you there for i was at rustic canyon for four years which these days is kind of a long time to it's be a, long a, restaurant. Time. It like a long time did they get their michelin before you got there during the time you you were there or? While,
1: while i was there while it was you were very there. very exciting
0: so, okay. So you're there for the first year, right? I mean, what year did you, they get the Michelin star? Cause I kind of want to hear the process of like how the kitchen responds to it. The management responds. I I've thought about that. Uh, like, what does that look and feel like, you know, from the owner's perspective, from the chef's perspective, the team, I believe it's our, um, 2019
1: or 2020 Michelin star. I can't remember. I'm bad with dates, but, um, There's a lot of rumors going around town. The the chef community is, uh, LA is big, but the chef community, like everyone knows each other. We all go to the same markets. You know, we all see each other all the time. So just a lot of rumors about um, Michelin coming back and also a lot of opinions. I mean, Michelin was in Los Angeles uh, and then they left because they thought Los Angeles uh, dining scene wasn't good enough to have Michelin Mm. there. Um, and for them to come back now that um, now that Los Angeles has made a name for itself for having an excellent diverse uh, dining scene um, It's particularly the, from the Koreans and the Mexicans and uh, and for them to come back uh, it was a little bit uh, some people had some negative views about it. Um, but they came back, and uh, and everyone was on the edge of their seat. Who would get it, you know? What what? Because Michelin is really inconsistent with what they consider to be um, one Michelin. Because as you know, there's a hawker stand with a Michelin star. There's a dim sum place with a Michelin star, and they don't have like standard. Obviously, the hawker stand. Yeah, there's no. Um, rhyme or reason the service is very different yeah there's no this seems like there's no rubric so and there was also rumors that they wouldn't judge la as hard on service which we are known to not have great service um so yeah when the when the list came out um it was for restaurants that got the star like like us it was uh, incredible news because i mean You're going to just have a sudden uh, increase, significant increase in clientele. You're going to have uh, international recognition. And for employees such as myself, suddenly I have Michelin on my resume. And that's the most recognized um, accolade uh, for a chef. Um, So it was huge. So another thing that we did was that um, right when... So, back of the house is not allowed to get tipped out, um, only front of the house, uh, and then at some point, um, that rule was changed, and back of the house was able to get um, a share of tips, and our CEO, who's a fantastic human being, was like, that's the right thing to do, and we're going to do that, but it's scary because the um, front of the house suddenly has to change their lifestyle because they're losing like 20% of their tips, which is a like, significant part of their income, Um, but Michelin comes around and our um, revenue goes up significantly. So their lifestyle doesn't change at all. Um, So it was perfect timing for Michelin to come in.
0: Now, when you say Michelin comes to LA, do they put an office in LA or do they just send reps out? Like how does, why does that, um, why is that significant that they're quote unquote in LA? Uh,
1: I believe what had happened was that um, California had um, paid, California tourism had paid uh, uh, Michelin to um, cover all of California, um, wow. and so they, yeah, so now they have more. Inspe- they need to get more inspectors. Um, they train more people. And
0: wait, Michelin? Michelin needs to be financed by the state or by the area that they're in. Uh,
1: I mean, (laughs) I don't know if that's always the case. I'm sure that some uh, cities don't pay like. um, But uh, yeah, I mean, there was uh, some politics involved to to get Michelin to to cover all of California
0: this literally is like the moment that i found out that you have to pay to get your star on the hollywood walk of fame. Do you know that? You have to pay? You have to pay. Yeah. You it, it's just i mean you have to nominate. There's a whole process but Yeah. You have to pay. I mean, it's not like, you know.
1: I'm finding, like- I'm finding out i'm finding a lot of similar things of this too. There's a James Beard um of like a what is that equivalent to? It's just like um a uh it's a uh, it's a church for chefs it is a James Beard is a highly regarded chef in America and the James Beard award is like the the Oscars for chefs and uh, and then uh, chefs often uh, get um, asked to cook at the James Beard house and it's a very um, um, uh, what's the word it's a very prestigious um, thing to do and I just found out that you also pay for that. Damn. I just, the chef just came out. She's like, I paid 10, uh, something like $10,000 to do the dinner there. I was like, out of pocket. Like, what? <laughs> oh. <laughs> this world is falling apart, man. Ellen DeGeneres is a bad person. Like what the hell's what's going on? <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, you it know. makes sense if you think about it, though. The economics of, you know, putting on a show and, you know, actually getting spotlight for, you know, your work. It doesn't mm-hmm. come for free. I mean, so not only do you have to You'd bring think- your team and your your, your food costs to the, to the arena, you have to pay the arena yeah. the 10K to... That makes sense, but... And I think that's what happens at the Hollywood Walk of Fame, too. Um, you probably get nominated and then you have to go through a process and you pay some significant cuz there's maintenance involved there's teams and um but the James uh the uh the Michelin surprises me i mean yeah, yeah. okay so yeah. when when they when they announce it i mean what do they what's the process of them uh, telling the management that hey you guys got a star is there a protocol a, is there there's, a, a, there's ceremony? a there's an
1: invite there's an invite everybody gets an invitation you have no idea if you're Who's getting everybody? it or not. Well, Who's everybody? Well, when you find you find out later that anybody who gets an invite actually gets a star, you just don't know how many stars. But at the mm-hmm. at the time, it's just an invite to chefs. You get a letter. I forget exactly what happened, but you get a letter and says, "Hey, you're you're going to be invited to the um, uh, the ceremony." Uh, and yeah, you at the time we had no idea if there, if you are going to get a star if you're invited or not. Uh, but everybody got invited got a star, and then you find out. Uh, at the ceremony, how many stars you get?
0: And, uh, Wait, did you go to that ceremony? or is it the chef the head
1: chef? Head, the head chef went. Uh, our head chef uh, Andy De Bravo went and I think you get like a plus one or something.
0: And who did he take? He took his fiance. Okay. So <laughs> when Andy gets the letter, does yep. he get a letter or a phone call? Like does he let the owner know? Um,
1: I, don't, I, mean, I don't know how I'm, sh- I'm sure everyone got told like I'm sure he ran around the, the whole restaurant telling everybody that we we're gonna go to the ceremony um, but yeah I mean everybody everybody needs to know it's a big deal you know we're right when we start hearing rumors that Michelin uh, uh, might come to town uh, every servers are trained to recognize a potential VIPs uh
0: what are you trained what are they trained to to watch for
1: they are trained to so there's a certain i mean it's probably changing now because they're having I mean, this hire so much but the um the uh the stereotypical michelin inspector is normally a caucasian like male maybe european uh they may come with one more person it's not it's not normally a large party. Uh, and, uh, they, uh, I, I forget exactly how they order, but they order a certain way. They order, um, a, maybe a little bit of, they, and, and they, I, re, I, believe they come multiple times too. So they order differently every time, but, um, let me see if I can remember anything else about them yeah i think they you know when you see them they just kind of speak a certain way they they look at the food a certain way they're more uh they're you just feel like they're not um that they're not there to just die love like normally they're, they're there to, to, they're to pay attention to something they're, just, they're not uh they don't seem to be hiding it exactly yeah uh but you know that that's just like michelin there's uh and uh I haven't uh, been to the trainings, but there's trainings for like, uh, we have a a piece of paper with pictures of all the uh, editors, the food editors for a lot of um, uh, food magazines and uh, newspapers. And there's just portraits of all of them. Like you need to know these faces. And they come in, they need to tell us right away.
0: They needed to, oh. So when
1: we hear that- The back. That the the back, the kitchen right away. And they need to know, tell the general manager. So when we hear that Michelin's uh, may be in town, um, pretty much, uh, anybody you think might even slightly be VIP might slightly be part of the um, might be uh, Michelin. You just let us know and we immediately VIP them. We don't send them anything, but we make sure all the food is
0: like perfect. But do you comp the meal or they still have to pay? No, no, they still have to pay. Okay, so then you get the Michelin star. You go to the ceremony. The chef does. What happens the next day? I mean, do you put it out in the newspaper? How do people, the general public, begin to find out? And what happens to the um, establishment internally? What do you guys start to do differently?
1: Um, well, the food community. Uh, is we're, we're all paying attention to it. So when the list comes out, it comes out on a few publications. It comes out on the Michelin website. Eater puts out its own list. Um, and yeah, and we all just talk about it for the whole week. Who got it? Who didn't get it? Um, do we do anything differently? Uh, not really. We talk about whether we want the second star and what that would mean for the restaurant uh, because two stars means you have to change uh, how you operate, what kind of food you serve, uh, and uh, how much more attention you need to pay to pay to service, and I think our consensus was we like well, how we do things. So,
0: okay, I want to know what what the fuck changes on a second star. That's crazy. I yeah, no idea. it's yeah the
1: second star at that point. If you're going for a second star, you might as well just go for the. You Perfect. might as well be have some sort of aspirations for a three. Uh, That second star is like just impeccable service. Uh, I I believe they start judging you on your wine list as well. Mm. Um, And um, the food just is like super pristine. How um, consistent is it? Um, And they are looking for a certain style of food. Like you go on the Michelin list you know no hawker stand is going to make it to two stars. There's no, yeah, that one star list is like it's got a bigger window, but the two star they're looking for a certain kind of dining. I, I, I am no, not for sure, but I am confident that like uh, almost all of the two star ones are uh, a, a tasting menu for sure. All three stars are tasting menus and uh. When you start working at that level uh it's uh, really stressful because every dish matters anybody can be uh, michelin and the thing is once you get the two stars your business or just any michelin star but once you get a michelin star your um, clientele goes up and you to uh, accommodate for that you need more staff uh you need to buy more food uh, and all this more money goes into it but if you lose a star it's devastating for the restaurant because you lose all that clientele, you suddenly overstaffed. Um, yeah, um, so a lot of stress once you start hitting two stars, three stars, uh, and that three star is I don't even know what that world is like. These guys are just yeah. machines. Who's having armies that conversation?
0: Who's having that Who conversation? To have the com- Internally, to whether like whether the we're going to shoot two for two stars? Yeah. Yeah
1: um every restaurant's going to be different i mean i imagine some restaurant the owner is like we want two stars now and uh but rusty canyon is very democratic it was a big conversation with all the managers uh, and the ceo and all the executives uh and yeah, it was a it was a group decision i think and and i don't think it was a it was never a one meeting thing it was just something over time uh, uh, what made sense for us and what felt right for us.
0: You got to um, witness something that uh, not a whole lot of people get to, to witness that process of uh, I didn't even know that there was that discussion of going from a one to a two star to a three. Um, when you got to Rustic um, did you see that this might be a possibility for a Michelin star?
1: I don't think I, I thought about those things at the time. I was so, I was so young. I was so, um, I didn't so naive about uh, how, what, what, what even meant to be on the Michelin list. And uh, I didn't even really know how to cook at the time. So I, I, I had, I, I didn't, I just kind of, if somebody, if one of my chefs told me that this is a Michelin star restaurant, I'd just be like, okay, I guess so. Sure,
0: yeah. Okay, uh, so how did you get but, to Rustic? What, what what, led to your decision to, to work there?
1: I was uh, moonlighting as a chef back in, uh, back in Oakland at the time. And uh, I was a EMT, like during the day. And then at night, uh, I started working at restaurants and I did that for about six months then um in oakland uh then i in oakland yeah and then i had to run down to la because some family stuff happened and i just joked that man it would be so cool if i worked at rusty canyon for um the the head chef and now chef owner jeremy fox who's the fucking man and I was like just fantasizing about it that would be just so incredible Uh, and I flew down there to intern or or not intern to interview for a day um, which is just you hang out for a day and they see whether
0: you know whether you can hang and I got the job wait a minute so you are only part of this industry for six months how did you get the interview and like I had worked for a
1: chef who used to work, um, who is, uh, used to work at the same restaurant that Jeremy worked at. James C. boot of uh, in who owns a few restaurants in Oakland. Uh, James and and Jeremy are part of a uh, this. They're part of the um, pedigree of Manresa, owned by David Kinch, and he is like a jedi (laughs) so they're part of this family they they were both sous chefs together uh jeremy took over as chef de cuisine eventually uh and so they've been good friends ever since and then james just called jeremy and said this kid's not a piece of shit (laughs) so i got the interview
0: (laughs) okay uh you you talk highly of jeremy what makes jeremy or what makes any boss that you've worked for what what makes jeremy in particular the man
1: um, Jeremy had left uh, Manresa um, to open up his own restaurant in Napa, uh, a, a vegetarian restaurant, and it became one of the best restaurants. I believe it was ranked like number two in in, in the country, um, and he was just doing some next level stuff with vegetables. Even the the number one guys right now doing food. I was reading some interviews and they were inspired by what was happening from Jeremy back in the day, how he was treating vegetables. And then think about having a restaurant in, in Napa at the time, it's just a very seasonal crowd. Like sometimes you have like a million people show up and sometimes mm-hmm. you would have like two people. And so it was very difficult. And uh, he was just dealing with a lot of uh, mental health issues. Uh, and, and had to leave the restaurant and um, a few other things happened and he felt like he got this job at Rusty Canyon. He felt like it was his last chance and for me this is all very important because he comes back all this all this hype about who he is uh, is on his shoulders and he's going to start working here and people, everyone's watching him and he decides to do some incredibly humble food. He's doing just simple roast chicken with carrots. He's just doing like, he has a, he's doing from high, like, like, imagine like if this was fashion, he's doing like some sh- runway shit for like Prada. And mm-hmm. suddenly he starts making like hoodies. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but it's the best hoodie. It's the best salad that you can have. It's an incredible, it's just like greens from the market. And he just dresses it. I, 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 for the, for three years, I never understood. I was like, why do we have a salad on this menu? We're like this, everyone's looking at us to see like what we're doing, we're supposed to be cutting edge and we have a simple salad on the menu. And it took me so long to understand what kind of restaurant we were and the importance of having something like that. So he's doing all this very, to my, in my mind, like very simple food, but it has inspired like a generation of shifts um, in how we look at vegetables, you know. Um I re- I remember him he was doing this um cream corn, but there was no dairy in it. He had just um taken corn half half we we took a bunch of corn kernels off the cob and he took half of it and we roasted it and the other half um it was pureed, um and then cooked and the natural starches in the corn um starts to thicken it up. And then you start mixing that together and you get a very creamy cream corn with great texture and it's and it's vegan. And and it, it was mind blowing for all of us. It was just like, yeah, how does
0: he, <laughs> and, he
1: was, and he said something else to me? He, he was like, Yeah, hey, listen, the, the starch content in the corn changes throughout the season. So as it as it changes, you need to adjust for more cornstarch, which is the net, which is was something that it loses. And I was like, fucking duh. So that's another thing. Just fucking so much common sense that he's just giving me all the time, like all the time, I'm like oh, of course, you know. So one day he comes in and he's like, "I can make this better," and we're all laughing. We're like, "This is the best cream corn that you can get anywhere, and it doesn't even have any dairy in it." And he makes it, and it's fucking terrible. It's all broken and shit like that. And and we're all just like, "Don't even look, right?" You know, I, I, we respect the guy. We're like, he's 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 crazy. <laughs> and he comes in. I think again the next day and he juices the corns this time and it's just liquid. There's no pulp in it. It's not pureed. It's juice. So, and then he starts cooking it super slow and it starts to thicken. It's pure, like uh, a velvety cream at this point. And now he starts folding in the corn kernels, the roasted corn kernels. And you're like, what the fuck dude? (laughs) And And it's better. And so he has all these, like his creativity, is just so next level and another thing is that um the cooking is what I learned from him like uh, uh, underneath all of this um uh fancy shit that you know that's elaborate stuff is actually like uh you you need to know how to cook like before we learn how to like put this juice corn and there's roasted corn together I need you to know how to just roast corn perfectly. How do we get enough salt in there? So, it's, right. Very foundational things. Um, so uh, there's that. And, you know, I think for a while people kind of called Californian chefs like maybe lazy and uncreative because our produce was so good that we could just put a pear mm-hmm. up or like a peach on a plate and put some olive oil and charge you like $20, you know? Yeah, like that's Gelinas. kind of what happened you know, yeah yeah Jelena's you got a niece is kind of like that too yeah. but you know and then I think Jeremy made it very undeniable yeah. that Californian chefs can fucking cook um, and on top of just being a great cook that guy who's just an incredible mentor like, remember we talked about um, how some people have the magic inside of them and yeah. they can't seem to get it out Jamie's a fantastic person at understanding raw ideas. I used to give him dishes all the time as a cook. He was very amb- very ambitious young cook. I was like, "Can you taste this? Is this good?" And he would, he would take me seriously, he would look at it, he'd eat it, and he'd give me all his notes on it, and he'd help me evolve these dishes. I remember when I started doing um, pastry in particular, I switched to become the pastry chef at Rusticania at some point. And I had no idea what I was doing, but I was just so excited about it. And I had all these ideas. And I remember one of the first dishes I had made that I was really proud of was just like, uh, we were doing a a dinner and it was just carrots. It was a featuring carrots dinner. And I was doing the dessert. Um, And I was like, the fuck am I gonna do dessert and carrots? And I made a carrot like budino, which is an Italian pudding. Anyways, It turned out to be an incredible dish, but not something that I just did on my own. Like we had, we had R&D'd it for like a few weeks. And I remember, I remember looking that day that we had the dinner, um, is when it came together. It was very stressful, you know, it was a big day for Jeremy as well. And he's, he's on, he's a, he's a scary dude when we need to be serious. Um, and I I had to deliver that day. And I remember like working on, working on, working on it. And I came in that day, and uh, I started putting it together. And he kind of just—he—he he just knew what I was doing. He would just nudge me in a certain ways, like maybe you should try this, maybe you should try this. And then when the dish came together, how it was plated and everything that was on it, we just put it there. We all looked at it, and it was just like that—we fucking nailed it. It was—it was incredible how it looked. Uh, it felt—it uh, felt—it um, felt like uh, we hit another level with uh, uh, what could have been a simple carrot dessert. Uh, it was, It was. I, I felt like he helped me touch the sky for a second, you know what I mean? Like the, he, he, he showed me, as like, he didn't tell me exactly what to do, but he kind of like, you know, really, really just like push me up, push me up, push me up. And I was able to just for a second there. And uh, I think once you know how to kind of navigate ideas so you can get to the end product, a lot of creative people have a hard time with uh it gets easier and easier and he's incredible at that it's like showing you like how how do you get how do you unleash that magic inside yourself it's fucking crazy what do you and that's something people don't really talk about that because they don't know about that about him but
0: what do you think made him become like like that
1: uh be to be a good like um
0: like a producer and mentor like that? Or no, 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 no. I I actually mean what, what gave him the genius, you know? Is it his tenacity?
1: Um, He told me he was a really bad cook and he gave me all these examples of why he was a bad cook and confirmed that he was a terrible cook when he was, when he first started. He grew up in Ohio, eating like TV dinners and stuff, you know, his palate was not trained early on. He wasn't eating like prosciutto like some of the kids that I know right now, you know? um and he told me something that i'll never forget And he's like listen if you work if you work hard uh the creativity will come and I was like don't worry about that and i just believed him but now i, I know that's yeah I, I think if you work around the right people and you don't there's a there's a um, excitement about being a chef and everyone wants to do cool shit like everyone wants to like um i don't know like uh make like a spherified like flavor bombs of like uh, tomatoes and make an app something that looks like an apple but it tastes like a like a celery or something like that and before all that you need to learn how to cook and he's like just like learn the basics first just do your just do your free throws and eventually you'll learn how to do the other shit right um and um yeah, I think, uh, I think for him, that's how he learned. He he just put his head down and he's like, I'm not that good, but I'm just gonna work really, really hard. Uh, and then as you can see the creati- creativity came.
0: You know, one thing that um, I've learned a little late in life, but I guess better late than never, is the idea of getting down to the granular, right? We talk about this sometimes and um, I got to witness this stuff Uh, firsthand with some people that I work with um you know I used to think that some of the friends that I work with were were really geniuses but what I realized by working side by side with them for a few months and years is they slow everything down and they really really dig into the details and it's almost to the point of you're just uh I, I was bored out of my mind just watching, you know, some of my partners take apart some things, but. Then as the months went on and they put it back together and they started to rebuild the thing that they took apart gra- on a granular, granular level, you begin to see the magic and the Jeremy come out of that process. And these are, you know, one of my partners is went to MIT. Yeah. And, um, just the way he thinks and uh, slows time down and really gets in the free throw and works that out. The magic to all that. God God, God and the devil are in the
1: details, as yeah. they say. Uh, I think people sometimes may feel like it's not important, that you may not notice, that the audience might not notice. Uh, but I, I, I think they do.
0: Yeah. But it also takes a certain person to notice that the process or the the genius of a of a Jeremy or a to recognize that there's that guy that exists and to see it and go okay whoa 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 let me slow my shit down so i can kind of reengineer this shit yeah. what do you think gave you sort of the um the 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 mindset, or the accepting of somebody like Jeremy, or the ability to even recognize a Jeremy. What what do you think was programmed inside of your um, experience or or brain that gave it? Because game got a game recognized game, right as they say. <laughs> I remember watching. He has a clip on uh,
1: uh, mind of a chef. He's he's doing a demo with. David Kinch, who is the featured chef for that season. And he makes polenta with strawberry sofrito, which is normally made with tomatoes, and he substitutes strawberries for it, which is crazy. And and uh, uh, a ricotta. And I remember him just, it's supposed to be about the, no, that's not true. I was about to say, it's supposed to be about the sofrito. The sofrito is the very fascinating part about it because he's able to use strawberries like tomatoes, which is, very interesting yeah but for me i was watching him make the polenta and he had emulsified it in a way where it had a sheen to it it had like a certain kind of a luxurious volume to it like a perfect whipped cream would have and i remember him just taking the spoon and putting it on a plate I somehow in me, I knew that somebody who could do that was an exceptional cook. And I was like, I need to work for them. And I just remember how the polenta just came off the spoon. And I was like, that's really hard to do. I want to learn how to do that. Um, and I showed up, you have all these, you hype these people up in your minds, you know? You know you, I imagine as a, I don't know, like a director or something like that, you see somebody like an incredible actor And then you, you finally meet him in person and you have him act, you're like, please be as good as my fantasies, you know, and I met Jeremy and I was like, yo, you are just as good as I hoped you'd be, (laughs) you know? Uh, And it was, yeah, it was, that's, that's what it was. It totally changed my life. I I saw that clip and, uh, and now I'm here.
0: What, uh, what did you do before you got an AMT? Um, Mm -hmm. But why?
1: uh i wanted to be a physician assistant that was my that was my dream <laughs> i was like that's it's like not too many hours like decent money and and that was kind of it it was like a it was a it was a it was a good life so i was told um, so i had um, i was work- after college i was working on my application I need to be an EMT was a good way to get paid, but also get um, patient contact hours. Um, And yeah, I would just do that. I would volunteer too. And that was helping out my resume as well. And how long were you an EMT EMT for? Two years. Did you see any crazy shit? Yeah, but not nearly as much as people think. uh,
0: Yeah, what's the majority of the
1: cause like? Not to talk, we're like glorified taxi cab drivers, man. I think the real people that people imagine EMTs to be are more like paramedics. Like EMTs are like, uh, I don't even know. Honestly, I have the lowest respect for the the uh, getting EMT certification because it's just like, people are just straight out of high school. The training is like, not that serious i did the training in like three four months and then and then uh you get a job and then just throw you on an ambulance and i was on an ambulance with this chick who had like only worked for like two weeks and i was like well you have previous experience in that right and she's like no this is, i've only been an emt for two weeks and i was like i don't know what i'm doing and she's like oh i don't know what i'm doing either and i was like great let's put these patients in our fucking ambulance and i sit there and i'm trying to like uh, i my training is i just check for the blood pressure i'm in a shitty ambulance they're all shitty they're creak. they're not they don't have good like um, handling or anything like that it's like really loud you know you're just you're in there trying to hear blood pressure and you can't hear anything because it's just it's ridiculous doing it inside of a vehicle and uh, imagine doing it in your sprinter you know what i mean and um and 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 I'm just writing down these blood pressures. Of like, I have no idea. I'll just put something that's like normal. Uh, and and yeah, that's that was what being an EMT was like. I would go to these nursing homes and they would need to go in. These old people would need to go in for an appointment to uh, at the hospital and I would just pick them up. They would have to be stable. Otherwise I couldn't take them. Uh, and I would just
0: take them and bring them to the hospital, wait for them at the appointment. And then, and that was it okay a, forgive my ignorance I'm, I'm like stuck on this question what is the difference between an emt and a paramedic paramedics are much more trained. they have like medication on them like they can give uh
1: they can treat things like uh like uh, anaphylactic shock they have stuff for like like alert big allergic reactions and uh they, they're just able to actually treat i don't have i don't have pretty much anything on me i have like a pair of shitty scissors i have my stethoscope that's I got from school that's like probably like 30 bucks and that doesn't work well uh and then we have oxygen I, I believe that's all I can really give them is is oxygen
0: um you know and- I'm, I'm sitting here my brain is working like overtime. I'm thinking okay maybe that whole EMT experience the you know racing chasing you know in the city gives him this sort of like this kitchen sort of ethos right nothing yeah, yeah.
1: I was bored i was i was hoping every day that i wouldn't get any calls so i can just sit in the ambulance and watch uh, just watch uh, netflix and uh yeah that was i think the craziest thing i saw was um i i did see something i remember a semi was uh turned over and uh and i was trying to get this guy out of the vehicle and he just i tried to like Right, the glass to get him out and he just crawled right through to semi broken glass. <laughs> like what the hell dude, what are you doing, man? Uh, but then the, yeah, the fire, uh, firefighters came and the parabenics came I'm like, let me just leave it to the actual people who know what to do
0: here. And then, and then I left. Okay. Well, what do you think gives you this sort of um, other side of looking at food? Because lot of great artists or a lot of people who are into processes aren't always just doing that one thing they're what i've noticed is they're just not always doing the cooking they're doing something else there's always like this sort of high level hobby that they're doing and they're just really proficient at that other thing too is there something in your life that has given you this sort of this understanding for process uh well i don't know if i'm like a great artist or anything
1: like that but I, i do have a fascination with uh With process, Uh, I think, particularly in cooking, uh, like Jeremy said, there needs to be uh, a foundation of um, uh, of cooking. Like I I remember watching an interview with uh, George St. Pierre, and he's like, "There's three tiers to MMA fighting. You have your like just athleticism, and it's on top of that, it's it's uh, your technique that you learn." And then on the very top is um, your your tactical abilities. And I was like, there's gotta be some parallel here with with cooking, because I believe that the issue with a lot of sh- chefs right now is that they don't have the foundation. They think they do, um, because they're watching all these videos on all these high-level techniques. And um, I think the, the journey to... Uh, to uh, becoming a great chef, there's one's trying to take big shortcuts uh, because they think the, the the end of the road is much more exciting. Um, so they do things like, you watch MMA at all? I love MMA, yeah. I, I just imagine somebody like seeing like a, somebody doing like a triangle chokehold in the air, like jump up and like wrap their legs around their neck I <laughs> mean? and they're like, oh, I wanna do that. So I'm gonna go straight to that thing. And it's like, you don't even
0: know how to do it like on the ground right, you know? Um, yeah you need so many years of that technical ground game you know mm-hmm. to, to kind of even understand what the hell you're doing with your body It's probably the same thing in in, in the kitchen and,
1: and I believe there's uh, I believe there's not enough for the, the early training stuff that the Japanese are really maybe take a, almost a little too seriously as they'll make you like if you work at a sushi restaurant they'll make you like cook rice for like three years or something like that you know before you're allowed to touch fish um but i believe at the very end of this journey before you become a great artist now we're dealing with some sort of mysticism now we're talking about like something otherworldly and you listen to guys like quincy jones talk about making a thriller um there's there's he knows how to make music and he knows how to make good music and he knows what a good singer sounds like but then there's some magic involved too and he i think he recognized that matt michael had some magic in him but also when he's producing he had said uh when you're when you're uh making music you have to leave the door open for god right and that's really like we need to our minds need to be open for something else and i think at a certain level once you get all the training done you get your ten thousand hours in I, I, I'm i starting to believe that you need to just, just start to be a little bit more in tune with the universe. There's something there. And I think this idea of how to make great work is what I'm really interested in right now. I want to figure out maybe, maybe I can um, understand there's some truth into how to make great work. Is there some sort of Truth in how Bach was making music, that how he was making great work, and at the same time, somebody like Picasso is like a a, a a common denominator in what had happened, what they did, um, and I think right now that really fascinates me. And from my current understanding is that one, there was a lot of hard work underneath all of this. You see, Malcolm Gladwell cut his teeth at like Washington Post for like years on end to learn how to write, to learn how to be a journalist. And now he's just like... Coasting. He's coasting. And he just he just knows how to do it. But he also has a very good eye. It's like, where's a good story going to be, right? And for me, he's just very in tune now. He has good taste. And now, now, now we're at the end of the line and it's hard to train these things. Now we're talking about how are you a... Um, like a a, 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 how if you understand yourself, I think who you are, and, um, and I, I think you'll be much better, uh, lightning rod
0: for. Yeah. I was just going to say, you're end.
1: now a conduit. Now you're a conduit of the universe. I, I really believe that.
0: That's profound. You had me, uh, at Quincy Jones. <laughs> yeah, I read, uh, I read his, uh, I can't remember his biography or autobiography. It was a thick ass book, but uh, yeah, the guy was like at it. Was it Portland or Seattle in his early years? And he just practiced. I mean, it felt like to his fingers bled. Uh I think he was on the horns or something like that. Um, a jazz musician from the early days. But then you think about it, right? You go, you, you know, when, when I was a kid and I listened to Michael Jackson and, and uh, the pop music, it didn't sound that complicated at, to an untrained, you know, ear. It just doesn't, but it was so fucking catchy and it just caught the world by storm. It was, uh-huh. and then you think you go back to the guys that made it like Quincy Jones. And he grew up in the jazz you know, his thing was like, his backbone was in jazz and jazz is ultra, com- com- the, the, so complicated. Mm. And then he takes, you know, years and years and years and he played in big bands all across the country, uh, moved to, the, he spent time in Europe and finally came back here and, you know, late, maybe 40s or 50s, he started to produce um, for, for, for Spielberg, called Purple and got into, you know, pop music. But he's got that. What you're saying, it's like that rich background of 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 music, of um, layers of it. It's not just like some regular musician who's like a session player somewhere. This guy's been writing and composing and and playing on his instrument in his you know early teens and just never stopped. And I think that that kind of that continuum as a human if you keep at the process of whatever your craft is you eventually are allowed in that club of allowing to be um a conduit uh for whatever that divinity that you're talking about that mysticism to come mm-hmm. into you and to allow you to kind of like do your bidding to, to do the the, the bidding of, of the gods right
1: yeah I... I think that's a, it's a t- t- tough thing to like, I remember watching a uh, Jay-Z uh, uh, one of his um, um studio recordings and he's listening, he's sitting there like, I don't know, 2 AM, 3 AM. And he's been sitting there all day listening to beat after beat after beat. And he's like, that's not it. That's, that's not it. He's like listening to like every beat that's currently exists. You know what I mean? And at the same time, his hair is completely grown out because he doesn't cut his hair when he's recording an album. And he's and once he starts catching uh, a um, he finds a beat that he really loves, he starts to start mumbling. And I think that's when the conduit thing happens. He starts channeling, you know. He starts mumbling. He doesn't write anything down. And then, and then, and then, and then, and then the magic comes out. Just almost every time that's how it works. And there's that hard work, hard work, hard work. And then there's the stuff that doesn't even make any sense at the end of it. And I think the stuff that doesn't make we're talking about process and stuff, all that other stuff that's not cutting hair and the, the mumbling that's like I think that's just experience because now you need to learn your process right Like how do I get the magic out of me? And sometimes it's just I just need somebody else like I need like another person in the room like this guy can help me do it so you just do that And some people just like I got there's some crazy shit I do I don't know what Prince's like uh methods are maybe he lights certain candles and stuff I don't know but or uh, Woody Allen I think he just rolls out of bed and just starts as a typewriter and just starts going at it but you gotta know like what does it for you and I think part of the the 10,000 hours is like always like being aware of what makes you tick
0: that takes um not only doing the work for 10,000 hours, but it also takes a sort of consciousness, sort of acceptance that you are um, on this journey and this path to mastery. Yeah. Um, I think Robert Greene wrote a book uh, called Mastery. I think he even wrote it with 50 cents. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, yeah, they talk about that. That book gets into, um, drills down into the specifics of what it takes to to and you know you, you go back to the the japanese culture you know i worked alongside with the japanese partner chef um early in my life um, over a decade ago and um they are serious about doing the menial task mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they're very serious about rolling their sleeves up and just um but it's not even a they don't break a sweat and it's just i hope that we're not losing um the battle in the world of getting down to the meticulous you know as the world is becoming you know tiktok and snapchat and you know digital and everything's so quick and everything's so fast i hope we don't lose the um the idea of, you know, really getting granular with, uh, with our work and I, and I, I hope that somehow, um, Vietnam can, um, adapt and, um, drill down on, you know, and I'm speaking from ignorance. I shouldn't even say that, but in my heart of hearts, I, you know, um, think about the Japanese culture and. How they really, um, they don't have this idea of, you know, we, we have this thing that, um, you know, we have that culture, you know, and it's, it's impeding, um, it's disallowing us to get to the depth of, of this conduit idea.
1: I feel like the Japanese have been much more consistent uh, even to this day about the what they produce. I, I, I wonder if it's just luck or there's something there that allows Vietnamese to still do some good work. Like, we still made pho. Like, what are we talk about? Just food like pho. Like, all the food and stuff. You know, bay was... Uh, uh, a a a version of true baguettes, but it's a completely different animal. Right? If, if you break down like what bun mi is, it's literally every step of making an exceptional baguette in France. You do it the laziest way every time. The most you can use the shittiest wheat. This is the lowest protein content. That's why it's so soft. If you higher protein content so is a much more um, chewy bread. Shitty product. They're beating the hell out of it.
0: You are breaking my heart right now, but we got to get yeah. into this.
1: You take, bun- you take the dough and you just beat the fuck out of it. And I believe in Vietnam, they also use dough enhancers, which is an enzyme that helps break down the, the proteins. So they like cheat a little bit too. They sprinkle a little bit of this enzyme in there and it breaks it down. So they're just like whipping the hell out of it. So it gets super tender. And then normal, uh, uh, like traditional french baking which still is like the uh, the 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 gold standard for baking there's proofing stages they know they've they've done this for so long they know that you need to proof and then you need to shape and then you need to proof again in vietnam why is just so fucking hot and humid they're just like we're just gonna do it all at once everything at once we're gonna put in the machine and we're gonna whip it for like 30 minutes we're gonna pull it out and we're just gonna start shaping them right away and then we're gonna put them right in the oven because we need to make a lot so we can make money um and somehow all that bullshit and all that shortcut you make something completely different and it's and i cannot recreate it i was the r&d chef of rustic canyon and i'm still fucking cannot i have no idea how they do i've tried i've talked to other people i have friends who like have been working on this too it's been it's 2021 like people have been like trying to like nail like great dishes of the world and really try to codify it you know um and by me is people are struggling to deal the, all these great chefs and we talk about shortcuts and Vietnam and stuff sometimes it really births something fucking incredible
0: i had no uh, idea
1: yeah um and so when when i start thinking about stuff like this i start thinking about what 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 is right and what is wrong right like is it is it wrong that we take shortcuts in some days and, and in society and and what our goals are maybe a lot of things we do are wrong but you you look at some of the things that came out of it uh it's like i i don't know <laughs> you know there's a lot of suicide in japan is it right for them to be doing that you know some happy ass people in vietnam <laughs> you know yeah
0: yeah There's uh, a lot to be said about, you know, the temperatures of of countries, you know, like uh, a lot of people say cold countries go to war, right? You know, people who come from colder climates are, you know, they gear up and they fight and they got this tactical, you know, all this stuff down and people who come from tropical places are, you know, laid back and chill. Yeah. And I'm sure it, it goes into the, the, the food prep ethics of, of, but then happy accidents like the banmi, you know, that that happens. Yeah. So, you know, it's something that I want to um, talk about is, because um, we're on this topic, is uh, the idea of the, the, the pho, spice bag, right? <laughs> the great debate. <laughs> the great debate, yeah. So um, we talk about, Putting, you know my mom and I have had multiple uh, conversations about putting the pho spice bag in before um, in the very beginning first two hours of the mm-hmm. um, 10 12 hour uh, process of pho, yeah. or do we do it at the um, last two to three hours yeah. um, what is your what's your take on it
1: I think uh, the majority of people put it in early. Uh, I am noticing, particularly when I dry roast things, which I actually almost never do anymore. Um, I'm noticing that the uh, spices they, they change a little too much for me, and they lose all of the um, the beautiful nuances. I work with a spice company, and uh, the I, and I have to send you some the coriander smells like straight up oranges it's unreal and and I'm like all right well I'm going to use these spices for pho because I'm going to have some next level pho if I'm using these spices and I remember toasting them and then going in for the smell and a lot of those beautiful nuanced high notes were completely gone and I was just left with something that reminded me of stuff I bought at the grocery store. So one, I don't toast it anymore. And two, I'm starting to believe that overheating um, spices um, is, uh, you, you lose a lot of those um, qualities. aromatics. You're really killing the aromatics. And we had also spoken about, um, you don't just lose water and it, uh, you don't just evaporate water when you're uh, cooking for long periods of times. So aromatics and oils and, and particles go into the air too. So long cooking times, uh, you do lose something more than just water, uh, so I think I'm at the moment I'm starting to side on putting in a little later, but putting in later, maybe for a couple hours, cut the heat and then let it sit overnight, because now you're not agitating the, the spices so much, but it's still it's still getting pulled out, and there's there there is a fusion of that happens when like you eat, you know, when you eat fun, you know, you leave it overnight. Like there's actual like um, molecules that start binding and stuff and taste, things start to taste different.
0: This idea of um, heat and no heat and then heat and no heat, just like the way Gordon Ramsay would do a steak, right? You do, yeah. you know, two minutes on a hot yeah, um, on the pan. You take it off for, you know, turn it off or take it off for a minute or you flip it and, you know, there's this sort of like on off and the idea of like, if you go on and off with the pho spice bag, um, that, cause I'm, what I'm worried about is the meat that's in the broth itself doesn't get yeah. its proper dosage. And so you're biting yeah. on like, you know, a piece of, uh, uh and it doesn't yeah. have that necessary, you know, it, you lose it. Yeah. And that's what I'm, you know, I worry about a lot.
1: I think that's a legitimate concern uh i would argue that you're slicing the meat thin enough and if your pho is potent enough that uh you may not actually notice like like you should have like your touch should be dumb there but i think once it starts sitting in the broth and you have be a really high quality broth and the meat has actually been in there and it has enough salt in it because you there's enough salt penetration enough flavor penetration and your broth is like perfect. I, I, think, I think you'll be all right.
0: Okay, so then that takes us to when do you put in the nigmom?: I put in nikmom early. And you don't feel like that kills the aromatics? No, I don't
1: no, because I'm not really doing it for aromatics. I'm doing it for uh, umami. they a very specific umami. and I also really do not like the taste of last minute. Fish sauce because you taste too much of the fish sauce. I'm not. I personally, I don't think that you should taste fish sauce. That it should just uh, enhance the flavors of everything and make it more damn da. But you, it's it's not there to be. Uh, it's fish. only there to be a supporting actor. Yeah, it's not there to be fishy.
0: I never thought about that. But yeah, I put mine in in the very early stages too. But I don't go. Yeah. I don't go full. I give it maybe 70% of its power in that first uh, maybe yeah. two hours, three hours. And then yeah. I'll slowly add that. Um, yeah. yeah. Towards the last three hours, I'll put in enough um, fish sauce just to bring out like sort of a brightness to to it. Yeah, we'll
1: get This normally good cooks talk like that. When I hear somebody talk like that, I'm like, this guy, whoever this is, knows how to cook because you only have opinions about that if you some if you have your face in the pot for a long time you're like what's happening right now you know what i mean like only some like obsessed motherfuckers talk like that
0: <laughs> so i do 70% early but then the last 30 you know what I mean? <laughs> well, you know it's interesting we're talking about that because it, you know you go from that you know to pho tacos you know and yeah. you know a lot of people were laughing at me in the beginning when I did that, you know, yeah. um, in the early years, they're like, what the what fucking gimmicky shit is this, right? But then you got to like really think about it and deconstruct this shit. Like I yeah. fed my family for, for for many years on on fat Tacos, you know, selling it out in the festival circuit. Yeah, And there's a, there's a logic to that. What you just talked about, that obsession, because you have to think like, okay, let me just do a regular uh, pot of broth and... Yeah. And let me just throw some meat in there and then we'll chop it up and banana. It doesn't yeah. work that way. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. You got to crank up the the flavor profile without choking the meat and making it, you know, biting into a salt log, like uh-huh. a log that's just salty and you cut it up and you're biting, you know, there's like a so like dance that, that happens. Uh huh. You know, and then, you know, so we had to experiment a couple of runs to get that. Flavor profile correct, and then uh, then you arrive at it. But it took years of just making regular yeah. pho for me. Um, yeah, standing over the thing and 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 staring at this thing and uh, and really going whoa, it's not hitting the notes that I needed to hit. Uh-huh. Um, and then finally, you know, figuring out what exactly needs to happen to 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 bring it up to the um. So when they bite into a taco, it it, it now feels like you're eating a bowl of pho without it's, being yeah. um yeah i mean you get the whole experience of like oh, fuck and just the tortilla is the only thing that kind of like that vehicle is the only thing that kind of transports so there's a tortilla there's a corn yeah. tortilla there's a corn tortilla and that's and the only you, thing that transports you into the the world of fusion right how do you get the
1: new how do you get, what's how's the how's the noodles it's, oh, it's there's it's, no noodles it's just no noodles
0: meat. yeah it's just me oh it's
1: pho- it's um like chopped up from pho- like yeah we take got sugar. it Oh, plank I'm picturing like flank and brisket, a noodle taco, like you're oh, <laughs> pan
0: frying <man>. these noodles. <laughs> it's, like bidia. it's like bidia, right? Yeah, or, yeah. That sounds great. Yeah, that sounds matanya, delicious, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, we fantastic. just do that, and, and you know, you're, you you could feel the the umph of that. You know, all of the anise and the coriander, and the, you know, all of that gets you know. Yeah. You get one bag in a regular broth, uh, uh a pot. But you know when we crank up the the, the spice bag for you know um, pho tacos, it's it's a steroids. You know, <laughs> it oh. kind of has to be. I'm yeah.
1: noticing because I had to do a, a beef pho actually for the first time uh, last year. Been making chicken pho for quite a while now, mm. and I thought you make beef pho, you just same thing, just you put beef in instead of chicken. It's a completely different animal. That's what I
0: heard. I've never made chicken pho
1: all right well, well you know one day you show me how to make beef because I, I think mine's not that good and, and then i'll make you some before yeah uh,
0: that sounds good yeah yeah that's really good yeah you have mentioned to me um on one of our uh walks um about sea salt i've mm. driven by um mounds of sea salt in vietnam and they're like oh you know that's where they get the salt and I always thought yeah, yeah. that you know, sea salt is just sea salt. It's like mounds of salt that's you know brought in from the ocean or right by the coast. Uh, but I didn't realize like there is a way that you can make sea salt at yeah. home or in the kitchen. Yeah, can you tell me about that?
1: So, I mean, it's the same thing. It's just it's faster in a much more controlled area so when you see. I imagine. When people discovered salt for the first time, they, they walked along the shore and they're like it's all these white crystals everywhere. And there, and it made food taste better and preserved food. Um, it's just an evaporation of, of water and you, and you leave behind all this salt. Um, so you we have uh, these fishermen that we work with, and they go out into the deep sea to fish. But while they're out there, we we bring and we ask them to bring some deep sea water to pull them all the way out in the ocean, as clean as possible, nothing close to shore where um, there's a lot of- um, Runoff. Uh, runoff from the, yeah. And and they bring it in for us. We filter it a few times through um, like cheesecloth um, to make sure uh, none of the particulates are in there, but the salt is still dissolved in there. And not just the salt, but the flavors of the sea, which is who knows how many things are in there. Uh, and then we put it in a big pot and then uh, and then turn up the heat. And you just start letting it evaporate very slowly because we talked about how if you turn the heat up too much you start losing a lot more than just water you slowly let the water go it takes days if you're doing a big pot um and then eventually you start getting down to like it starts to getting like murky and that's when all the salt you start seeing a lot more um it's much more saturated with salt uh, and at that point um you do a little bit of stirring to make sure it doesn't start sticking and eventually there's so much salt and it can no longer stay um uh soluble inside the the water and it just starts all the molecules start to stick together and you start seeing crystals start to form um and then you just do that really really slowly and eventually you have like a pile of salt it's incredible yeah, hours of that yeah super long and then you take that out and you you let it uh, air dry for a bit to get out the last bit of moisture and then, uh,
0: All right, then let's let's talk about this bullshit. Because <laughs> <laughs> man, I for the okay, I'm like completely ignorant with salts: Himalayan salts, pink salts, bath salts. Like, I mean, what is the rage with the different salts? Why is it so important? Uh uh-huh. Well, first, definitely don't season your food with bath
1: salt. But I am curious what that would taste like.
0: <laughs> I know, just um, threw that in because it rolled off the tip of my tongue.
1: <laughs> uh. Himalayan, uh, so pink salt, Himalayan salt is is really trendy right now. I, I think it's just the color, and I, and I did some reading. I'd say it's mostly color. Maybe there's some minerals there, but you can get minerals from sea salt. There's plenty of minerals in the ocean. What about uh, the taste? The taste? is
0: about the same. Um, What's all the hoopla about? What's, why? Okay, we go to a bakery called Proof yeah. Bakery, and we eat yeah. cookies there. Yeah, the the breakdown. What is that? It starts with an M. I, I forget what the Malden name. Malden salt. What is it called? Malden. Malden. Why yes. is that even on the the, it's very, the board?
1: It's very important. Uh, I mean, uh, the the thing, the cool thing about Malden salt is it's very large flakes of salt. It's not super salty or anything like that, but there's uh, it gives great texture, and there um, there's just enough texture on there for you to feel it, but it's not like crunchy like there's some like koreans use a very um hard rock salt and you can kind of like it's it's a little too hard for for me personally but there's some good uses in in korean food um and it just gives salt flavor to things um without overpowering without overpowering it and just makes sense for cookies like there's you know there's salt for pretzels you know and that's the kind of salt that works very well for pretzels and i wouldn't put malden on there
0: how do you make malden i mean how does it go from like this blocky hard to this soft flaky those
1: guys have been working i think malden comes from england and they've been making salt for a while now and their salt the way that they do it um they don't they don't do the scraping thing because what they're looking for is they're trying to make uh The way they do it is once the salt starts to uh, crystallize, they make these pyramids. They start to um, crystallize in these pyramid shapes. And uh, that's the signature um, uh, texture that you get from using Malden is you get these really, really cool um, pyramids and they just um, hit the right way in your mouth.
0: How did you learn all this in such a short time? I mean, like, when you're, like, uh, when you're young and passionate, like,
1: everything is fascinating to you, you know, and so you're just such a sponge, like, I feel like passion is like a, um, is a um, performance drug, because you just, you're, you're suddenly way smarter, you're, uh, you learn so much faster, and you can just, you're, uh, you can just go for so much longer, like, if you do something you don't like, it's, it's exhausting. But if you do something you like, like you can go days on end. Um, and I was just so passionate as a young cook that like everything I saw, I was able to just stick to, I have a terrible memory, but for some reason with food, I just remember watching all these things. I would see the, I would hear about Malden in books or I'd see it on TV and then I'd see it in person and I would just be like, you know, just staring at it. And then you can use it over and over again. You get a better understanding of it.
0: The work that you do now. Um, okay. So you were in Vietnam uh, at the beginning of the year of last year, 2020, you come back uh, around March or February. And it's the fan with Corona. What, how do you pivot from that point in history, that point in time? Um,
1: I don't, I'm not, I'm I'm not so good about sitting still. Um, I came back and I was supposed to, uh, work, uh, I was supposed to be the chef at, uh, one of Rustic and sister restaurants. And, uh, obviously that fell through because of, um, COVID. Um, and I had another job prospect too that also fell through because of COVID and so before I left Vietnam, I was like, I could not have been more set up for you know a good career after. And I came back and I was like, all right, I have nothing. Fortunately, I had been in therapy for a minute there and I was able to not fucking freak out uh, and just like uh, allow myself to feel what I needed to feel and figure out what to do next. Uh, but it was definitely scary watching people who are in the restaurant business Uh, a lot of my peers were losing their businesses. Um, And I think at the time I knew that things wouldn't be the same again. And then two, I could not not move forward in the same way we used to because that's clearly not going to work. So I did something I normally don't do, which is play video games. I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to pick up something that's unrelated to food. And I was just... Um, I just hung out. I couldn't believe that time could just pass like that. we just wake up and just not go to work, which was odd for me, and then eat. We were doing this. We suddenly fell into a schedule, me and, and uh, my family. Uh, we would eat lunch at 12, and then we'd eat dinner at 6. And it was very important to all of us that we were eating together. And then between all that time, I was playing games. Everyone was just kind of doing their own thing. Uh, and at some point I started getting really antsy, uh, and I knew that would happen. I was like, uh, I can't, uh, I can't sit still. I'm going to run out of money eventually. Um, like, do I need to change careers? Um, what are my other skills? Um, and I remember one day, uh, I had smoked some weed and I had a terrible panic attack and I was like, my life is gonna go to shit if I don't do something. And and then I had the idea that I was gonna do Gum. I was like, it's gonna uh, be able to help me accomplish a lot of things that I wanted to get done this year. One, I wanted to cook Vietnamese food, but another thing was the reason why I wanted to cook Vietnamese food is I wanted to get closer to my culture. And if I did end gum, then I would have to learn these dishes um and that would start conversations with people i don't normally talk to like my aunts and my grandma and my mother um uh, and those meals that we had at 12 and 6 um right when we started where right when the lockdown happened were all Vietnamese food my we didn't want to eat anything else for some reason we we lived by saltel we didn't want any Japanese food every day we're like Every day I just threw something together with my mom. We made a Vietnamese food. And, and for a while there, for weeks, maybe even a couple of months, we had just only eaten Vietnamese food. And I was like, you know what? Like, I think right now, this is what people want to eat. Is like, we don't want to eat anything fancy. Uh, right now, where everyone's really stressed out right now. And maybe um, maybe the food I'm eating right now, this ganjua, this call that I've been eating every day, Maybe somebody's gonna want this because I sure hell like need this right now, um, and so that helped me decide what I was gonna make. And once I started thinking about what that was gonna help me accomplish, uh, I, I ran with it.
0: Thanks to weed, <laughs> wow, <that's laughs> helped me cool. out a lot. Yeah, yeah. All right, I have an idea. I want to make Vietnamese food, and then what? I have an idea. I want uh, to serve this to the people. Yeah. What do you do from there? I'm, um, I don't
1: I have, I have, I have a great following on Instagram, but I have a decent following um, from people uh, around town. And I was like, why not? I was just promoted on Instagram. And, but all the back end stuff, the logistics, I'm not very good at. But I had a friend. Uh, that works, uh, that does project managing and stuff for the company she works at. And I just called her up and I was like, hey, I need to figure this shit out. Uh, and uh, I just I just know what I'm not good at and who to call and, and was able to figure out the whole thing.
0: How did you, um, what were the responses on the street? So most important the most, not the most
1: important, the most uh, critical responses were gonna be from Vietnamese elders. Um, And I started getting uh, orders from from people and they would put in a note, I'm ordering one for myself. And then this one, please bring to my mom because I was doing deliveries too. And I, I would be like, oh shit, I'm gonna drop it off at somebody's mom's house Damn. and this is like somebody's man you know <laughs> they're gonna eat my tit call like all right well you know you are can you really make tit call you drop it off at somebody but house but house like and then i'm and these people all had my phone number this is you know it was a pop-up that i gave everybody my phone numbers like you need anything you can contact me i am the only employee in this company you like the food you don't like the food here's my email here's my phone number Call me, tell me I suck, whatever you need to do. And I'm getting called, like, Mike my mom doesn't like anybody's food, she's very discerning. This is, she said, very good. And I was like, I think I'm on or something. And yeah, I saw
0: uh, several of my close friends that I respect. Um, I respect their palates. They posted on uh, gum and I was baffled. I was like, what the hell? This could either be some high level motherfucker who's like just come down to earth to hang out with the mortals for a little bit, or it's just somebody who just likes perpetrating out there and just, uh, but then nobody would call their shit. And better be like, you know, you gotta like that. Those naming conventions mean a lot, you know, because i is just like, okay, all right. Either he gets it or he doesn't. But you know, from what I was like reading from, from my friends was, the food was fantastic. But then, you know, I didn't know who it was. I was just like, all right, there's this guy they're doing this thing on uh, gum. But then mm-hmm. you peel back the layers and you're like, okay, there's Rustic Canyon. There's all this shit that is in the background that, you know, I get introduced to ungum. gum. I've never even had uh, your food up to that point. You get introduced to the idea of ungum, gum uh, is a Vietnamese word for eating, eating rice. It's just so simple. And then everybody's raving about it. But then it's like, okay, well, there's got to be some pedigree that, you know, somebody's got to be like behind the shit. Got to be. But then we get to talking a little bit more. And um, I remember having a talk with you uh, over Christmas break um, in the kitchen. And we talked about specifically talking about um, you working as a private chef and you making A new dish, of vegetarian or vegetables, right?
1: Every day. It it, it it depends on which client, but pretty much, pretty much a new dish every day. Some of them had
0: meat. Okay, let's talk about that. I want to get into this whole like client acquisition at that level. Um, You know, people at that level, how do they find people like you? But before we get that, I want to know about the that noi mong that. Switching up the, the, the new dish. How do you yeah. get inspired by um, coming up with something different every day? Um,
1: so Rusty Canyon is a seasonal restaurant. And uh, we are always changing the menu. That was our thing. Andy, Andy and Jeremy are really good at it. Andy is incredibly prolific for the last few years uh, and I just came from that mentality like new 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 do different and if you stay the same uh, uh it's not only boring for you and the client uh, but also you're not challenging yourself so I just always I just had that belief in me um and then But it's like, so to come up with it, um, it, I feel like it's very similar to jazz. I don't think on that level, but in the sense that like I'll pick out chords or I'll pick out a dish and then I fill the rest in. You know what I mean? I know how how hummus works, but I'm gonna make a hummus plate and I'm gonna fill in the blanks what a hummus plate is to me, right? And you can make a hummus plate billion different ways uh, and that's mm-hmm. just how it keeps going and then for when I was working at Rust, so I, when I first started becoming a private chef I was also working at Rustic Canyon uh, I didn't tell too many people about this um, and then right after Rustic Canyon right after I get off of work because I was also part of their um, uh, production in the morning I would get off at like 5 five thirty, and I'd go straight to the store and I would have no idea what I was gonna make, and I would just walk through the produce area, and I'd be like, "All right, this, 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 and this," and then I'd have straight up 30 minutes to shop and go straight to my client's house, throw together dinner <laughs> every day, and um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to repeat anything, mostly because I didn't think I was, it was okay to do it. I later learned that it was would have been fine, but my clients were like, "I've had private chefs before." Uh, i don't know how many dishes in we are it's been like three months and i haven't seen a repeat yet and i was like oh you're right i haven't done that yet
0: and and i i was like well Yeah, i've never heard of anybody doing that but i think wherever you came from that was like a regular thing to that culture and mm-hmm. fucking mind-blowing to me because i can't even get past five meals you know like uh my go-to is vegetarian chili or you know i make a yeah. baba ganoush that you know and that's it. I mean, that's what I will do for myself. But to think beyond that requires a lot of like uh, brain sweat to dig into figuring that out. For me, it's not an issue of, OK, let me pick out three, four chords and then I'll lay a melody on top of that. It's not it's more than that. For me, it's like a, a lot of um, psychic energy to kind of like concentrate on. So it's, and I'm, I'm, you know, it must be a process that that you're very used to
1: there is like I mean there's there's a foundation that I can lean on I I I know these as a chef you're kind of expected to be this encyclopedia you need to know all these techniques especially now you need to know all these techniques and you just need to know how all these flavors can go together and right now it's just very cool to put uh, uh unconventional flavors together you know like chocolate and bacon or something like that um, so I'm, 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 I'm growing up as a chef in this new culture where like, I need to know everything and I'm really trying to push myself to be that kind of chef. And, and I become a private chef and have all this information now. Um, and it's just really interesting to put it to work. How'd you get started as a private chef? Somebody had approached me. I'd gone to this, um, dinner. I had done a pop-up dinner uh, in downtown and then I got invited back to be, uh, to just eat. Uh, and then somebody sitting there with me she ran she ran an agency and she was looking for chefs so i got hooked up with this this client um who turned out to be now he's a he's a good friend and uh, i still work for him to this day um and yeah and then i I just i got into it and and then i I left and only did it for the money so that i would have money when i went to vietnam and took off work um and then and now it's uh
0: Now it's my main job. Before you go into a house, did you get briefed by the agency on what to do, what not to do? Because I was in the window coverings business for many years because my parents did that. And I went with them and I took over their business and we spent a lot of time in celebrity homes. And there's a sort of unspoken rule about how you go about I mean you're basically invisible as a as the help mm-hmm. does the agency mm-hmm. tell you what to do
1: no I had like two days of uh, of the um, the CEO of the agency was also a cook too she was incredibly hard worker she would uh, she came with me on the first two days and eventually I just I was like I, I got this I, I, I um and then she left and i think just watching her for those two days it was enough for me to be like i think i need i know what i need to do
0: what did you learn in those two days that you did not know going in one uh
1: becoming uh turning going from uh, being a chef at a restaurant to a private chef A big thing is that you forget that suddenly there's much more to a restaurant than just making food there's the service side too um and learning how to um suddenly you have to talk to the customer which you normally don't do uh you have to like get the table ready and get served foods ready to let the clients know when the food's going to be ready uh how to communicate with them uh and uh and another thing is to just um a good private chef makes everything pretty personalized like you know what your you know what your client's gonna want you're always just, like, in tune. You should be, yeah, yeah you should really, you should know your, your client. Yeah, you should be able to anticipate a lot of things. And she was okay. just really good at that.
0: So you bring a gra- bag of groceries that you went to go shop with, right? You come in at, yeah. what, 3 o'clock in the afternoon for dinner? Or do you come in in the morning? How does this work? <laughs> I,
1: so I get off of work at, like, 5, 5.30. I have 6 o'clock. I, I, have, I have till it's about 6.00. 6:15 to shop and i need to have re- dinner ready by 7 7:30. 30 so i get there and i start banging out food like <laughs> uh and yeah just kind of make them quick but you know in that small time period you can only make certain kinds of food sometimes i would come in early at rusty canyon and i would i would knock out some things that would take a little bit longer like a raise,
0: and then i would show up to the house with it so you, you make the food at the, at the client's house and mm-hmm. you, then you set up the table for them? And set up the
1: table, ask them if they want water
0: or beverages and um,
1: when they want to eat, um, let them know what they're going to eat. Uh, and and is and there it.
0: family there too? So I, I,
1: I was working for uh, this guy and his, and his girlfriend. Um,
0: so it was, it was just the two it's of them. Two of them. Mm -hmm. do you okay you serve the food you lay it all out you bring it Mm -hmm. out from the oven it's all sitting there it's hot Mm -hmm. where do you go after that do you sit down with them and shoot the shit i mean Uh,
1: no 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 i'm always in the kitchen i I try to yeah i i I always think it's very important even though i'm friends with this particular client now uh it's very important to always stay professional and they have their dinner if they want to talk i'm there to talk um i have had to learn how to chat um uh being in this business if they want to come up to me and they feel like talking i'm ready to talk uh and then when they want to leave they can leave and i shouldn't make them uh i shouldn't make them feel like they need to stay in the kitchen talk to me like there should be you should get whatever you need from me
0: so that's some high level eq shit you know and it's that's it's like everything. It's like even 50% of like the good food, you know, 50% is just that soft skill of going yeah. into these homes because their, their feelers are, are more sensitive than I, I wouldn't say it's more sensitive. I just say, you know, the nature of these homes and these homeowners, you know, they're just, more on high alert, because they're probably famous, or they're probably constantly bombarded with people wanting their signatures or stuff like that. You Mm -hmm. have to kind of act like, I mean, it's really just another person. Um, But a lot of people don't get it. I used to bring guys on the job with me and they would just literally stop because they're just so blown away by the extravagance or the lifestyle or even just a celebrity that you're, you know, you're right in front of, you know, And I'm like, you got to shut all that off and you cannot talk to the client unless you're being spoken to. It's a hard pill to swallow too sometimes. It it is. Some people want to talk, but I think,
1: you know, you don't even notice when you have like, I mean, personally, uh, when I have contractors come to like my home, like fixing the fridge or something like that, I I don't normally want to be bothered. Like I just like come to your job and and, and leave. Um, I think with the chef's a little different because it, it feels a little bit more like part of the home and they're there for a long period of time. But they're still like, I have a couple of clients that are extremely busy. They work a lot. Um, and uh, they just want you there to do your job. Like, you know, they're not there to be friends. Like Yeah. Um, what are so some of the conversations learn. you've had before? Oh, man, I've been doing this for a minute now. Um, so... <sighs> Kind of, I mean, you're, you're, it's, it just, it's like it's like being a, a bartender man you're like yeah uh you you are what they need to be if you want if they need you to be the therapist you're the therapist if they need you to just like uh your opinion on something you're there to give your opinion uh and you always try to be as professional but somehow friendly at the same time yep. so you know it's a fine line um a recent one i had is i have this thing um yeah you know i love kids man i i love your kids you, you see me like talk about me all the time you know yeah. like was adorable Hearing, yeah. um um but uh i uh i have some uh concerns about you know bringing uh my own children to this world and whether i want to adopt you know what i mean um and one of my clients he's a he's a he's a rapper he uh uh, he heard overheard me he normally doesn't talk to me that much he's he's so busy he's not like he's not a nice nice guy but he overheard me and he stopped and he's like you don't want kids and I was like I'm not, I was like and I, I he didn't let me finish I was like I, I was just, I might want to adopt." and he stopped and he's like and he gave me all the reasons to why I should have a child why it's ridiculous that I think maybe there's like a financial I, I was like it's kind of expensive to have a kid he's like Listen, I got a bunch of kids. I may be really rich, but like most of the shit that my kids have, they don't need this shit. Like they just need like some food, some shelter, like all this other stuff is like completely unnecessary. And he went on for like 10 full minutes. And I've had a lot of people try to convince me, especially my mother, that I should have a child. And I think it's the first person to actually like make me think like, oh, maybe he's right. Maybe I should have a kid. Uh, but I also have like conversations with um, certain people's uh maybe girlfriend. I won't mention names or anything would we'll be like,, uh, oh, you know, we're having issues right now. <laughs> uh, what do you think about this? and having to stay professional in a situation like that is uh is it can be challenging, especially if you have actual opinions
0: <laughs> yeah, you feel like um you have to really shut that part. i I, i'm a i consider myself a very gregarious you know open person you know i I love to talk and but going into these homes i mean um it's killer sometimes where you oh man i I, i'm just realizing that now that must be challenging for you not to (laughs) not to want to talk You you know in talking to you now now i realize why i hated the. i never thought about this until up until now i hated the business growing up i um I remember being like twelve or thirteen. I tell all my friends this: uh, being twelve or thirteen, and you know, my parents had just come from Vietnam. I mean, in 1975, and you know, it was there were 13 years in. It was like 88 or something. And um, I was carrying up a ladder into this mansion in Beverly Hills, and um, you know, I'm like looking around, and it's like decadent, and it has all these like paintings and pictures of this, like this guy. And it turns out to be sliced, uh, rock, um, Rocky. Sylvester so Stallone.
1: Sylvester so Stallone, that guy. The
0: house, yeah. And I'm carrying it up, and I'm like, at that moment, I'm just like, fuck. At that moment, I remember just being 13, and from that point on, it was just like I, every day, every year, just built up. You know, I hated it, and I had to take it over in 2000, around 2000, and you know, we expanded it in Vietnam and doing you know work and um, production, but now that I'm talking to you now, I always felt like I was not, um, a, you know, you're, you're not allowed to talk to them. You're not allowed mm-hmm. to connect with somebody. Somebody who was really sweet. And I had a long conversation with her. was Pat Benatar, uh, worked on Pat Benatar's house. I mean, we worked on a, a lot of names and Pat Benatar and I had talked about um, weight loss for a good 30 minutes we spent half an hour talking about, you know, intermittent fasting and, yeah. you know, these things, uh, paleo at the time. And yeah, it was just really, I was just like, Oh my God, what am I doing? Why am I in this business? And yeah, I, yeah. and I would roll with these, um, with my crew of guys. I'd bring, you know, sometimes teams of three guys, four guys, but it. it i mean, still to help, you know, it's like, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thankful that I'm not um, directly, you know, interfacing with clients anymore because that was a, it really killed my, um, who, who, who I felt like I'm, you know, I'm meant to be. It's like, yeah, it's tough, it's a tough uh, journey. I I, mean, I, I, I say that
1: uh, about, um about when like contractors come to my house and. But when I'm on the other end, I actually, I I do want to at least have at least a a little bit of a relationship. Yeah. And there is a a client that I have where I feel like uh, I'm just, I'm just to help. They're not, you know, they're not, he doesn't even say hello when I see him. He says, uh, dinner's at seven. And I say, okay, yeah, I don't, I'm not, I am actually. i do not really take it personally, but it's just nicer. It's nicer when, uh, you know, I have a, a relationship with them. But yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I can be a little social, but for you, <laughs> Mr. Social Butterfly, oh my God, he must have died inside.
0: <laughs> it was painful, man. And yeah. I never understood why it was so painful until now, like, I'm as I'm getting older and I'm talking to you, I'm having this conversation. I'm like, yeah, and on one end, I'm like, you know, it's weird because, you know, on one end, I have some friends that are celebrities in their own right and yeah, they're yeah. amazing and then on the other hand i'm like i have to service that other part of the that that same community and have to wear these two weird hats you know and i could never talk about um my work or my my passions and uh-huh. strange strange place to be there's another guy like um adam carolla talks about this mm-hmm. I think he was a, a carpenter or, or a contractor for many years you know when That's i think right. about him I think about like, oh my God, I think about him a lot. You know, he's somebody who really worked in the real world and had real life experiences for for many years and you know, talked about that. I think growing up, I used to hear Adam Carolla talk about, and I used to be like, okay, there's probably light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> there's gotta be a reason for all this crazy shit. It's just yeah, it's painful. Yeah, for for I'd rather almost work in a in an office where there's nobody there than to have like to be around people and not be able to communicate and connect with them and to be denied this desire of yours yeah (laughs) ah it's so painful um what do you think makes food or anything art good um been thinking about this a lot
1: uh, there. If, if we talk about these, these are like supposedly subjective things. But when you're talking about, there are some. Uh, I, I call them truths. I don't really know if that may be the right word for it, but that's what I call it. And there are some truths in some creations, like, for example, bread. Uh is a, a dish somebody came up with, right? Somebody came up with the idea of bread and I don't know how thousands of years have gone by and there is still a connection to bread that we have. Bread is still great. Um, so there's something there about bread that uh, that is is gonna be always good. Bohemian Rhapsody is I believe always going to be good um uh, I, I don't know if there's an answer as to what it is um because I've been listening to like uh, like listen to a lot of comedians some jokes like a great joke I don't really know if you can um if you can uh logic your way to a a great joke that's why I think that's why Dave Chappelle kind of riffs for hours on end because he's really he's trying to be a conduit he's trying to pull these things he keeps talking and talking and he's trying to kept, get get these things and uh um uh, the, the point of what i'm trying to say is i believe there's something there i, I don't really know what it is but we're talking about food specifically that's also another challenging thing because i'm still on a debate is on sh- uh should food be delicious like is that important do you think food should be delicious
0: oh fuck yeah yes uh hands down i think it should be simple and simply delicious it shouldn't be inflated or conflated with you know a bunch of shit flavors you know um but yeah delicious and delicious is subjective but should food be delicious should that be a goal like is that an important goal yes
1: and, and I, and I feel like a lot of, um,
0: I feel shifts. passionately about that answer, but why do you even dare to even ask that? Uh, that question? What, why? I ask because I don't, I ask because right. I don't believe
1: it's a goal okay. for a lot of shifts. What um, do you
0: think is their goal? What, I mean, where are you coming from?
1: Cause I, I, I eat at a lot of these, Michelin start restaurants, these great restaurants, and the food isn't delicious. Uh, it's, it's a lot of the times it's about the idea. It's, it's trying to achieve something else. It's trying to surprise you. It's trying to um, give you a new sensation. It's trying to show you a new combination
0: of flavors. Um, okay, so what if, what if what they're doing in that exercise is trying to deliver deliciousness and it's not landing for you like a joke from a comedian or a yeah. song that somebody might think is good. Yeah. But it's just not landing and connecting with you, but it's still mm-hmm. delicious to somebody's ears or to their. Um, that's true. I think, I think,
1: I mean, I go to a lot of pop-ups um, and I, some I've, i've definitely found some pop-ups to be uh inedible even and i always wonder and i'm not trying to talk shit about anybody but i always wonder like well I, they they ate this and they 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 thought this was they thought this was really good you know darren i know some of these people are uh are like uh known around town so they're gonna do a pop-up you know i'm it's gonna be a big deal to them they're gonna put some thought into this and for it to be inedible for me I wonder what what are you trying to accomplish like maybe see I, I, I you, I'm, I'm kind of like uh having a hard time uh, finding the words for this because I'm still not I'm still not sure uh, if they understand what delicious is i don't i feel like that sounds arrogant but i, I don't believe that uh, i i think the fascination with all this uh this the high fashion of like great corresponding right now it's you uh, uh dave there uh, i i feel like when i'm eating this food dave a lot of it has forgotten um uh like the soul of great dishes. Like you eat a cheeseburger for the first time. You're like, you don't need to ask yourself, is this great? You're just like, this is, you know, this is incredible. This is a classic and you eat like, you're like bread. You don't need to ask yourself, is this delicious? Um, it, it it may be subjective, but I, I feel like I see it a little too much
0: where maybe that's not the case. Um, do you think that the, the authors or the creators of these dishes are deliberately putting out stuff that's, or do you think that it's just mindlessness? That the creators I don't
1: think it's mindlessness. I, I think there's, um, they're aspiring for something else and it's been able to um, compensate for um, the deliciousness. I did something you see it in some people who go to like nice dinners and stuff, the fanciness and the experience has seemed to make up for yeah the food. Whereas you go to a, um, you go to like a hawker stand or something like that. Uh, you have nothing else uh, to, uh, no crush. to hide behind. There's yeah. no, there's no crush to lean on. Is the you're You, you are there solely for the food. And if I take some of these dishes and I put it into that setting, and if you're there just
0: for food, um, would you say it's good? Mm, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I get your point. I get yeah. your point. Japanese food, for the most part, stands on its own. For the most part. like the Japanese get- food is damn good, man. Those guys, solid. Know some, they know something. <laughs> yeah, they know something. Simple, yeah. solid. It's just pure. Um and then you, you go to the fancy restaurants yeah you're right uh, but i think one thing that i'm wondering in our conversation is it, is it a deliberate thing um and it's is it qualitative quantitative like can you quantify quality can you kind of put it on a metric you know measuring system taste you know you ever think
1: about like Think about just like purely, like we just judge things on satisfaction. Like I've gone to some like nice meals before and I'm like, you know, had I gone to in and out I would have had a much better time. Um, and I mean, for me, I think that that's something to pay attention to when I when I had made, uh, I remember doing NCOM and I was thinking, whatever I make uh the bar for satisfaction needs to be something that I really love, like my mom's tit call something like that i'm not uh i am not trying to accomplish more than that anything more than that uh that can happen, but first of all, it needs to
0: uh, at least hit these goals yeah this goes and it's applied to everything in art and the creative journey yeah. um there's things that are you know in movies that are just like a visual feast but the story doesn't move the emotions there's- yeah you, you
1: you see you see it in movies uh, but uh, so that's another thing As like when i ask something like "Is food delicious i also wonder like s- story is really important in like movies and stuff but at the same time like s- two things on the like Love actually can exist, but and, and, and I enjoy it a lot, but also Wong Kar Wai movies I also really love and they can both they can both sure. exist, right? Um and and love actually is not for everybody and and uh and, and maybe that's the case with food is that you yeah. know people are just making things that that I just don't care for. Um and I, I and I am on the on the side of let's do great work uh let's try to make let's try to be tarantino let's try to be scorsese
0: that's why um you know it probably shows up in the food that you make um that level of uh detail and goals and you know um there's another thing too that we're not talking about is uh I don't know if this is true or not, but our taste buds from per person yeah. might be limited from person to person too. Like the amount uh. of taste that you have. Yeah. Right. You know, the uh. range of taste, the, the the depth of your your taste buds. Yeah. It's got to be like if you take a hundred of the best chefs in the world, I don't know if a hundred of those guys all have three thousand taste bud, whatever receptors on their tongue, versus mm. you know maybe twelve hundred receptors in their tongue, and mm-hmm. but they're all a hundred top chefs of the uh, in the world, and you're like, okay, yeah. well, maybe maybe two hundred of those guys have that. You know, I mean, I'm sorry, maybe twenty percent of those hundred chefs of the top, you know, have that the receptors, the ability to kind of like understand it you know, in a global kind of like, and I don't mean like global as in world, but I'm in, in your mouth global. Mm. Uh, you know what I mean? It's like, how do we know? Like, uh, they're not all like, you know, n- every, nobody can be at the same level, but there's certainly things that I like to eat. You like to eat that we enjoy. Um, that, uh, uh you know, sometimes I look, at people around me they're just like ew that's gross well it's not gross because i can perceive what slight weirdness there is to that dish that i just Uh i I love it like the is one of those things that i oh i love you know disease and weirdness and, and 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 problems you know with health aside eating that coagulated fresh raw duck blood i There's a certain um, magic to that uh, dish. I feel like like
1: that's a challenge that I really, um, the challenge of having so many different, uh, everybody's tongue is different. Everybody's like smell is different. So everybody receives food a little differently and everyone's looking for food, something else. And everyone's looking for something a little different in food uh, or what they're trying to get out of it. Um, but there's this like Steve Martin line, I believe this is, you need to be undeniable. And I feel like, (laughs) I I, I feel like regardless, um, it is, you, it is possible to, um, whether somebody prefers this kind of food or, or, or not, uh, that you should be able to make a great meal for them. Like there's a, like a like Christmas dinner I knew that that was going to be easily received by a wide range of people mm. I made that and I was like all right regardless of what their preferences are what they want to eat I have a this is a this is a kind of meal I think a, a lot of people are gonna gonna be able to enjoy and I think there's something to that
0: right um just to follow up on that thought, um, it was a mind-blowing, like, first time I've ever had that level of uh, a Christmas dinner in my life. Oh, thank you. And it was uh, I, I, almost indescribable for me at this point. You know, I mean, there's no need to describe it because it's just like, yeah, it was an experience. And, you know, the um, the ingredients are pr- like everything. Like, where you bought that stuff is not where i would shop you know it is mm-hmm. it's just not where i would buy things i i wouldn't even know where to source that kind of stuff and and it was, you could tell it was like very simple but the ingredients were just from you know not places where normal people just shop yeah and then the processes obviously was
1: you have good palates too i mean not the stereotype but cooking for asians is normally the the more uh i gotta be on my a game when oh, i cook really? for asians yeah, yeah because um, right. generally you know they're they're good eaters um they come from cultures of good food uh, they're also very adventurous because they're they're um uh because they're, you know we normally eat like like quote unquote like crazy shit anyway, so like a lot of other Uh, cultures of food is like very easy for us to eat like I can I can eat a taco it's like what's scary about that yeah Um, and or I can eat like taripas on tacos like I may eat that at dim sum restaurants you know Um, so yeah cooking Asians know their shit Latinos normally really know their shit Uh,
0: yeah what um, you know we we we've made um, references to music a lot, and I think we mm-hmm. share that sort of background um, with music. What uh, you know? What does music have? What kind of meaning does it have in your life? And the, and the actual, you're you're an amazing singer and guitar player. I've I've got to experience that over recently. And um, how has that played into your life? What kind of training. What what did you do to get to that level? Uh, the singing and guitar yeah
1: um the guitar I wanted to get chicks and the singing well I always uh I I love singer songwriters I love I love songs I want to I wanted to sing along and I don't think I'm a great singer or anything like that but uh for a long time I you know I I couldn't really sing uh I, I started a open mic club in or a music club um in uh in high school and you know we would go to Uh, cafes or um, like convalescent homes and we would like just play music. But I was like, I just remember like, man, my singing is like not good, but my guitar was able to um, kind of, uh, it was good enough in guitar where I could compensate for it. And I think since, since like 14 and now I'm 31, um, singing in the car for a long time, uh I'm, I'm gonna have like a, a decent voice like that's my training it's just like singing in the car and you've you know, never had
0: voice training. classes or anything like that
1: Mm-mm. um and then the guitar thing i just like locked myself in a room for hours on end and eventually was able to figure that out uh but music um uh, its role in at least my cooking is that I feel like uh, I rarely eat food and it makes me feel like the way I feel about music. Like I want to eat food and it gives me the same awe that I feel when I listen to like Kanye West's music, you know, just like, you know, it's completely unreal out of body. Like I can't believe somebody is, is able to do that. And the, um, Well, music is, uh, it's able to um, capture like a piece in time, and every time you play, it just hits, it just, it's whatever the artist wants to give you, and it's a perfect um, replay of that, whereas with food, there's a lot of variables. Every time I remake a dish, a lot of things change, you know, Um, um, but I am just always inspired by that feeling that I get when I listen to music. And I, I was like, uh, how do I, I, I want to do that. Like what if I was Tom York of food what would that look like? Uh, another thing is that uh, I think it's too, it's at least for me, very challenging to understand where, at what point in my career I'm at. I don't really know. I'm not I'm not very, I'm fairly self-aware person, but in terms of my career, I don't really know where I stand. Um, I think, Uh, I'm I'm a decent cook but then but you know who I am relative to other chefs it's very hard for me to understand but when I look at it relative to like I really love J. Cole and I've been following J. Cole since he dropped his like early mixtapes until now and if I can just like kind of imagine where I'm at in his career it helps me understand Mm, interesting the, the relevance of what's going on with me and I've told you before uh um I think it's much easier to understand these abstract ideas um, when you are able to foil them with other things, you know. And the more you understand things, the more you can kind of just piece together. You know, I'll use MMA to kind of understand like how to, uh, ha- how to become a better chef and, uh, and I'll use like rap music as a way to figure out um, uh, what, where I am in my career. When I dropped Aunt gum, I was like, this is my mixtape. And I need to take it seriously, like my mixtape. What does it mean, um, and uh, and what what do the what I need to accomplish? What does a, a good mixtape accomplish, and and how do I parallel that to what I'm doing?
0: There's a creative uh, relativism happening. Our uh, our Asian tiger moms had something uh, up their sleeve. They figured, you know, piano or you know, yeah, yeah. but. All funny business aside, I mean, that understanding of um, another creative discipline, when you kind of blend it all together, it makes a big impact on um, how we practice our our work, how we go about it. So you get better too. It's, it's hard, I think it's hard to
1: produce great work if you only yeah. do the one thing. It's hard for you to open your mind up. It really because is. If you want to be a vanguard If you want to step outside the box then you had to have been outside
0: the box you have to borrow from different disciplines and bring it in because Mm -hmm. otherwise it's stale it's not um it's one dimensional almost Mm -hmm. because you just use the same um uh
1: blueprint that's been before you It's, it's gonna be it's gonna be very challenging
0: to to move forward God, this is the thing that well, I, well, I know music is changing in Vietnam, but, uh, you know, when we were growing up, you know, you had Paris by night and you had all the singers that came out of that, yeah, shaking your head. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought about it, I thought about it for many, many years, why um, the youth that I was growing up with, uh, the youth culture wouldn't, wouldn't consume it you know obviously we didn't have a connection to you know the old music that that was being sung um on that label but the, the the thing is this it's like the growth of uh the sort of pop music that came out of the 70s or the 60s out of Vietnam it was kind of being replicated and you have the same chord progressions and the same sort of like feel that never really grew um you take American music, jazz, you take the black experience, you take rap, you take all those things, and then you you mix it in with all of these other uh, musical traditions in, in the United States, and it gives you this sort of freshness that makes you want to consume it, you know? Mm. It gives it this sort of like this pop, this, this spice that, that you're just like, okay. And I think with the, the Paris by Night music grow, growing up, um yeah and, and that's not to say that I didn't enjoy a lot of this stuff that did come out because I could appreciate what you know was coming out of um that period you know I, I was able to to really enjoy it for what it was but but beyond it it was just hard to you know grow as a person if you wanted to get into some other shit you know it just didn't feel right that uh you know they were trying to exp- band with, you know, like a rap uh, artist in, at Paris by Night, or it just didn't feel, you know, it didn't feel authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had,
1: I mean, I shook my head because uh, it was very challenging for me to listen to that music as a kid. I mean, I associated it with my parents karaokeing a little too early on Saturday mornings. I associated it with, I used to take a uh, sandal to, uh, between uh Uh, San Jose and uh, in Orange County to visit family and stuff and they would be blaring that all the time too and I like music but I could just never I I couldn't find the music uh, in that and I was was very very frustrated with uh, I was like man I I wish our um, uh, I wish our people could make something better i mean i'm sure there's stuff there you mean you like it and i'm sure there's something that i but for a long time that's that's how i felt um and and i'm really really excited to have gone to vietnam and see that all these young kids are trying new things and i believe that they have to i mean people just want music but also things need to get updated because people change like
0: society yeah
1: society's changing you want them to receive it and has. it has to um it has to change with the people like you listen to comedy like if you just keep doing the comedy that was people were doing like in the 90s you would it wouldn't even it would just be buffoonery and now
0: so There's a lot of hope. I mean, you know, every time I go back to Vietnam, which was, you know, a few times a year last year and the years before, you know, there's always stuff that you can argue now that they're like zooming past, you know, a lot of things that are happening in the world, you know, Um, I used to be very worried that the the close proximity to the South Korean pop uh, scene was, you know, bleeding in and blending into making art. But you know what, that's part of it. That's part of the history of mankind Mm -hmm. close proximity Mm -hmm. to other things that are good you know it's gonna rub off and it'll produce some other shit it'll spin off and create some new generation you know and i'm excited about all that and i wish that um i hope that i can continue being an appreciator of Mm -hmm. the mixing and mashing and not be this old man yeah Who's staunching like, oh, yeah. my music was, you know, yeah, shit. yeah. No, fuck that. I want to yeah. be able to keep an open mind and, and yeah. you know, like when Kendrick Lamar was, you know, when he came onto the scene, you know, I remember my young friends who were like a decade younger than me were just, you know, that was like all the rage, and I just couldn't get it. I just couldn't, mm-hmm. and I still, on some level, cannot get into it because I'm a, I'm a child of the Tupac Biggie era you know, and that yeah. kind of music is just the right amount for it. Even Kanye is a little bit, you know, uh, new for me. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, you take the time to kind of listen to things and, you know, mm-hmm. process it and uh, allow it to be and keep an yeah. open mind. And I think that's why we get
1: along is this is very similar minds. It's, and especially with something like this, every generation says that oh, it's not like what we used to do, you know? Oh, this gender, this generation is going to shit. Every generation says Every, that. They all say it. At some point, somebody who really knows a lot about music, Led Zeppelin came on the scene and they're like, yo, what is this garbage? So what are we not seeing, you know?
0: And I want to see it. But you go back to quality, you know, Adele. Adele was somebody who, you know, Rick Rubin, you know, redid her thing for what, two years or a year, you know, redid her album. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's just traditional piano and vocal you know Mm -hmm. yeah quality very well how is it still so fucking fresh when you hear that album you know i think 25 right is that album when you hear it you're just like Uh oh my god it's just piano and singing and it's the chords are nothing special. It's, you know, basic, you know, regular chords. Yeah, there's not, the, there's not much going on in Adele songs other than- nothing. But what is it? I love, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Adele, you know? Oh, she's a beast. Beast. And how does she get our stamp of, the entire world's stamp of approval for that being quality? And you can argue, like, you go back to the Paris by Night music, it's basically the same thing. It's vocals and, you know, a bunch of piano and synthesizers. But what is that quality? What is that defining quality? And in, in you know, it's not new. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be looking for that
1: answer for the rest of my life. Yeah, I have no idea. I remember girl, her. Um, she had been gone for a few years, and her great return was I, uh, I think, uh, at a commercial for the Super Bowl, and it's an advertisement for her new album, and she just sings the first word of Hello. She says Hello everyone loses their shit uh, how how next level are you to yes. say something like that just you know, just people, not even a bar <laughs> not even a bar not even a bar and, a bar. and then you, and then the um the hype of everyone's mind of you who recognize you are it. and then for you to meet and exceed those expectations with the word uh there's i don't i don't know what it is other than, magic yeah it's like there's a, to it too. there's a uh i forget who said that's some neurologist he's like i think we only understand like maybe five to ten percent of the brain he said the rest of it we have to leave to the poets and hmm, i think that's that it's
0: that magic well today was magic i had a great time this is fantastic um we will definitely be revisiting um, each other um, on this podcast uh, in the next uh, few years to come. Yeah. Um, I am always uh, interested in hearing what um, kind of work you're going to be producing uh, down the line. And even if it's not food related, I can't wait to see, because I think on, on a very basic level, you're an artist. That's it. That's why you know you understand the creative uh process and you're you're on your way to new to, to do new things and and i'm excited and um to to follow and to track your 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 work throughout your life thank you so much for for coming on today
1: yeah man thank you for having me it's been uh it has been such a pleasure to have uh met you and uh and, and all your friends it's uh yeah i feel like um you know, ice age when manny's running around looking for the other woolly mammoths i feel like i found the other woolly mammoths <laughs> oh they're here there they are we're looking for you guys <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh that's a, such a good um the, this is so cute i love it <laughs> the woolly mammoth crew love it yeah yeah. yeah yeah well again thank you so much and um you know we'll talk uh We'll be talking again soon um, on this show. You know, let me know what the next uh, project is, and we'll uh, we'll get into it again. We'll do. Yeah, let's talk soon. All right. All right, bye, man. I'll talk to you later.